By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adam Young Golf. So we've got our first official sponsor, Adam. I'm about to do an ad read. How cool is that? Awesome. Let's do it. This keeps the content free for you guys. So, <laughs> and we always pick good advertisers as well. Yep. So we have partnered with Shop Indoor Golf. You can find them at shopindoorgolf.com. I've been sending practical golf readers to them for years. I'm friends with the owner. They're a great company. And we're happy to have them involved. So we are approaching golf simulator season. It's the fall. So they carry all the major brands of golf simulators and launch monitors like Foresight, the GC Quad, which Adam has. Uh, They've got the Skytrack, which is what I use. They've got some other brands like Unicor, which can pretty much fit every budget. And what they've also done is come out with a cool line of their own products. They've got a new Sig Pro Premium Impact screen. So if you're looking for really good quality picture, from your projector, something that's durable and super thick can kind of dampen the sound and prevent the ball from bouncing back too much. This is now one of the best simulator screens on the market. And they've also got a bunch of golf mats. I actually use their Sig Pro golf mat at home, which is very cool. So check them out, shopindoorgolf.com and huge thank you to their support. Yeah, it's pretty cool what we can do with simulators indoors now. I mean, obviously, I've got a simulator indoors, but so many of my pupils now, when they send me their videos, they're they're hitting from their garages, sorry, garages. My wife always makes fun of me with, you know, beautiful indoor setups. So, yeah, I think it's becoming a lot more popular now and you can start to compete against people throughout the world as well. So, really, really good fun. Yeah, I've had my SkyTrack for four years now and love it. So, what are we talking about this week, Adam? 
we got a couple of things. We're going to deconstruct some of uh, the Fratelli interview and just add some layers to what was discussed. And then we got some feedback as well last week, which I think was really good feedback. Sometimes you send those things to me, sometimes I send them to you. And so, yeah, I thought it'd be a good addition to the podcast. We could talk about it because I'm sure I've heard this argument so many times that, yeah, it's it's a good one. If one person is thinking it, I know there are going to be several others. So it's an important one to discuss, I think. Okay. And just a reminder to everyone, you can always reach out to Adam or me directly, whether it's on Twitter, on our websites, good feedback, bad feedback, whatever you want. We want this show to be about all of you and helping you with your golf games. So keep reaching out. We appreciate it. It gives us ideas for more episodes and we can keep the content coming to you. So last week, we interviewed Dylan Fratelli, who's a top 100 player in the world, two-time European Tour winner, went on the PGA Tour. And we just thought it would be interesting to talk to a, a tour player and kind of get their perspective. And to be fair, I think if we interviewed 20 different tour players, we might hear some different philosophies on the golf swing and practice and stuff like that. But, you know, it was a shorter interview. One of my childhood friends, his name is Ryan, was uh, texting me. He's like, why is this episode only 30 minutes? I'm like, well, that's all the time he had. So we thought Adam and I jotted down some notes from that episode. If you haven't listened to it, you can go back. But we kind of had some reactions that we'd like to cover. So Adam, what was number one on your list that you'd like to start with that Dylan mentioned? Um, So monitoring, you talked a lot about monitoring face to path. So that's uh, using the launch monitor I mean, interestingly, when you were saying that, that's one of the few things I don't monitor in my own game using a launch monitor. I might look at the averages a little bit, but usually when I hit an offline shot, you can kind of tell just the face is closed down too much or you leave it right, the the face has been open too much. The path doesn't change too much from swing to swing for player. You know, I might do a little check on the path early on in the uh, session just to see that it hasn't gone off into any bad patterns. But it's interesting that that's the, the main thing that he monitors. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you and me were texting about this afterwards. I sent you a message. The thing that struck me about that was... You know, he mentioned that on most swings, I guess non-wedge swings, he was kind of going out for a zeroed out swing path. And that kind of freaked me out <laughs> just personally because as I talk ad nauseum on episode about my into-out swing path, you know, I often hear some instructors go down that route. If you are with an instructor as a track man or a GC quad and, you know, let's say they are sharing swing path numbers, I have heard certain instructors say that like, yeah, I want my students to have a zeroed out path, which essentially means that you're going to be hitting almost straight shots, correct? Depending on average. But for me, you know, as someone who likes to shape the ball right to left, and we have spoken about shot shape before, about how you and me prefer players to pick one shot shape and stick with it. But I thought was interesting was Dylan said that, you know, he kind of shows up on the course and deals with whatever pattern he has for that day. You know, maybe he's drawing it or fading it, which would occur if you are going out with closer to a zeroed out path. You could be on either end of that spectrum based on how you're delivering the club and the club face that day. And to me, that kind of like weirded me out. If I showed up one day to the course hitting a a little bit of a fade and then other days hitting a hook, what were your thoughts on that? I mean, I don't think there's one better way to do that, but I'm just, I was thinking about that concept of aspiring to have a zeroed out swing path. And it made me, you know, think of a few different, I guess, whether it's pros and cons of doing that approach. 
Well, yeah, if you've got a zeroed out swing path, then, you know, from shot to shot, you're going to get a little bit of variance. You might have one that goes a little bit to the right, falls a little bit to the right of that. You might have one that falls a little bit to the left of it. So you'll be hitting a mix of draws, subtle draws and fades. Whereas for you, who likes to draw the ball every time, you'll still have variance. It's just going to be whether it's a bigger draw or a smaller draw. So I don't want to say the advantage is that the ball is always curving the same direction because that's not really an advantage, right? No, no. When you actually think about the mechanics of what's going on is you're you're picking a target and, you know, living with the dispersion of how that ball ends up on that target. And no matter what shot shape you're hitting, we've spoke about this before, you know, balls are going to be landing to the left and right of that target no matter how they curved in the air. But for me, it was more of like a psychological thing is like, could I actually live with looking at these different ball flights on the golf course? Me personally, probably not. Well, I I know because I zeroed out my path. It's almost like this automatic thing that happens when you start to use launch monitors is we just, even though I know I shouldn't be doing that uh, necessarily, it's it's just you're, you're drawn to it like a moth to the flame. And for lots of players, it can damage them because of the psychological thing that you talk about, you know, knowing or liking to see the ball curve one way all the time. And that's very different to having a one-way miss, right? Because you know, you curve the ball right to left every time, pretty much, but you'll still have a two-way miss. Sometimes you'll curve it more to the left and it'll be a left side miss. And sometimes you'll hit more of a block, something that curves less to the left and you'll miss it on the right-hand side. You know, when I used to play a big draw, I could still miss in the right rough and still have a draw shot into the right rough. So a two-way miss and seeing the ball curve one way, really, you know, have a think about that and separate them out. Not you, I'm talking more to the audience. Yeah. And just to be clear, I was thinking of what Dylan said, obviously not in the context of his career. (laughs) He's playing professional golf for a living and making a, a very good living doing it. So it's obviously working for him. I was thinking of more philosophically is, you know, for the normal quote unquote recreational golfer, is it possible for them to aspire to that zero dot path? Because I would think you would maybe need more impeccable face control in that scenario, or you could like I'm just thinking what could go wrong is or you could get into this maybe psychological tailspin of seeing all these different ball flights on the course and being like, oh, my God, I can't handle this. But yeah, it's somewhat of a can of worms. <laughs> well, yeah, I would say being a person who used to hit a big draw every single time and has gone to a more uh, zeroed out path. And I do lose the ball both ways in terms of the ball will tend to fade offline sometimes and curve offline to the left sometimes as well. So I get both ends of the spectrum. A little bit. Also, so you both tail off. But here's a question for you as a swing instructor. Would you try to, I assume you're trying to avoid the extremes when, you know, you have golfers coming to you, like if they had a, a swing path that was 12 degrees out to in or 12 degrees in to out, that's just not very functional on the golf course for most players. Like you would try and get them back into a less extreme territory, correct? Well, yeah, because if you have such an extreme path, like 12 degrees offline, usually that's going to come with an extreme swing direction and that is going to affect ground contact. So someone who swings 12 degrees to the left is going to have tend to have such a steep angle of attack that it's not going to create a functional ball flight in other areas, you know, because they're going to have to open the face up to the path a lot, which can cut off a lot of distance. They're going to have a very a large amount of spin loft as well, which can cut off distance. 
it's not that a 12 left path can't work or even produce the same consistency as a zeroed out path. It's just that there are other factors involved in terms of the distance and angle of attack. Similarly, if someone's swinging 12 degrees to the right, that is going to put their low point so far back that they're going to suffer with ground contact issues. Lots of fat shots, a very, very shallow angle of attack, and they're going to have to hook the ball so far onto the target that they might reduce the spin loft so much that they can't keep certain balls in the air. So you're an example of that in a way. You're not extremely into out. You're on that functional end of the spectrum. But if you were to double what you did, you know, get your path even more into out, you've already said that sometimes you struggle to keep the driver in the air and you get lower spinning golf balls. Yeah. And that's where I think over the last three or four years, again, I don't really pay attention. I don't have a launch monitor that even tells me swing direction. I just work from the ball flight backwards and can tell what's going on. But over the last three, four years, especially in tournaments, I've had to learn how to put less curve on my golf ball where I don't really hook it that much anymore. It's more of a controlled draw. And that's through a lot of the the neutralization techniques I've talked about in many of our episodes. In any event, I don't want to open up a face-to-path can of worms here, but I just thought that was interesting because I know certain tour players will try and shape it in both directions. Some guys exclusively hit a draw or a fade, and then you have players like Dylan. Adam Scott comes to mind. I watched him warm up on the range once, and he was just hitting straight shots the whole time. So it just goes to show you that there's, I mean, that's the beauty of golf. There's so many ways to get it done, but it has to be functional. Well, here's a little thought experiment. Say you got a player who has a six degree in to out path. All right, so they're swinging six degrees to the right. We know that in order for them to hit a straight shot or an on target shot rather with a seven iron, they're going to need to have a face that is about three degrees open, right? So six degrees right with the path, three degrees right with the face. That will produce a draw that lands on the target. Now, say you had another person who has a zero path and a zero face they're going to hit a ball that lands on the target just like the draw would, just like player A, but they're going to take a straighter path to that. However, as humans, we're going to have some variance either side of that. So say you gave both of those players two degrees of club face variance either side. So, you know, the the zero person is presenting the face two degrees left to two degrees right, and the plus six path, the draw is presenting it plus one to plus five. So they got the same face variance. The outcomes are going to be the same. Yeah, that is what's interesting about all of this. Yeah. And, you know, the drawer is, is going to have a pattern where they hit sometimes a block and sometimes a bigger hook. And the zeroed out path person is going to hit a slight push fade and a slight pull draw is going to be their, their variance either side. But the end result, if you were to just look at where the balls finish, they're going to be the same. Pretty much. Well, here's my personal argument on that. And again, I am incredibly biased. (laughs) I would say that, or at least I think for some golfers, the player who had the more extreme swing path might psychologically deal with that better on the course versus the player that watching the ball going in these opposite directions, even though they're ending up in the same place. I feel some players might not deal with that as well mentally, and it might make them have more doubt in their golf swing. Exactly. And I would attest to that as well, because I know that when I stand on the tee now with a zeroed out path, I don't have that same sense of confidence of knowing that the ball is going to shape one way. 
Whereas I know when I used to hit a draw, I would just be so confident, well, I'm not going to miss this left of wherever, oh, sorry, I'm not going to miss this right of wherever I start the ball. There was an innate sense of confidence with drawing it. However, physics-wise, like I just discussed, it doesn't make a difference. So what you can do to see how much of a psychological impact you have is to test these things. You know, I will get a player and I'll say, hit fades for me onto the target, now hit draws for me onto the target, now hit a as straight a shot as you can. So we'd look to zero out the path. And we could see which pattern is the tightest, which one has the lowest standard deviation. And that's the one we tend to play with. But then you have to take that out on the course and collect stats on the course as well to see if it's holding up out there. So there are ways of figuring out which one is right. And you are correct. There is a psychological element here that can lead to more variance with a player or more inconsistency if the brain is not functioning right with this certain shape. So for some people, it might be the opposite. For some people, they might like to see a straighter ball flight and that might give them confidence as well or to know that their swing path is zeroed out might give them confidence. There's so many factors here. You just have to test these things. Absolutely. We've got other stuff to talk about. So you want to button that up for us? Well, I'll leave with one thing. Yeah, I'll leave you one thing on that. I want everybody not to go out there and say, oh, I need to zero out my path. That is not what we're talking about at all. You don't have to zero out your path. I would probably avoid extremes. Like if you're outside of five, six degrees, either side of zero, that might be a call to say, let's get a little closer to zero. But there's certainly no real advantage or a player with a zeroed out path has no real advantage over someone who's plus or minus three. So don't uh, imagine that we're saying you need to zero out your path from this. And my last comment on that is if you don't even know these things... Sometimes you don't have to worry about them. Other times, you know, if you are working with a swing professional who has one of these launch monitors and is very good with them, they can help you navigate this world and find out what's a functional swing matchup for you. I often don't want golfers going at it on their own because, as you said, shifting swing path can change low point, a lot of other stuff. So I'd veer towards the recreational golfer working with the professional on that stuff. So another thing that Dylan said that caught my attention was that <laughs> the key word for me is he said he was starting to write down his practice routine, which means that prior to this, you know, prior to winning millions of dollars as a professional golfer, he was just kind of showing up to the practice range and doing things, which now he's taking a more, you know, disciplined approach and planning out his practice routines. And I had a few reactions to that, which, you know, I'll explore. But what were your thoughts when he said that? Well, I wrote a book on practice and how to structure practice. <laughs> well, I know. Yeah, that's why yeah, I wanted to tee you up on that. We got to sell more practice uh, manual books. But I think everybody's different. I think you can get someone who is, some people, you can structure things too much for them. It, it loses the joy and they need to be a little bit more uh, winging it in a way or turning up on the day and saying, what do I feel? Because there is, <laughs> there's something to be said for instinct as well. You know, it's, for some people, it's like, oh, I want to work on this today because I've been struggling with it. Well, okay, good. Go and work on that. It's probably what you need. Whereas if your structured schedule says, well, no, you can't work on that because you need to work on this because the schedule says so. Well, that might go against your goal. So there needs to be some flexibility within the plan. When I draw plans for people, I do. I give them some level of structure, but there's also flexibility within that structure. I would just say people should always go with some kind of goal to a practice session. And that goal might change. You might select a goal on the day. The goal shouldn't be, I want to hit 
great shots because that's not really in our control. Go with working on something. Like it might be a movement goal. You know, I'm going to get my weight shift better today, you know, or I'm going to work on the drill my instructor gave me. Or it could be, you know, a pressure situation goal. Like, okay, I'm going to try and get 10 in a row or try and beat my record. That's another thing I like to do is record certain things. So if you're getting good feedback, you can record that feedback. So the divot board is a great example, right? Get lots of players to make 10 swings and they note down after each shot where they struck the ground. So they'll make a swing and they look down and the divot board says they struck it two inches behind. Okay, they write down a two. And they do that 10 times. And at the end of 10 shots, they can say, I averaged 2.3 inches behind the ball. Now, the simple act of doing that, number one, getting feedback, and number two, recording that feedback, that changes your brain. It heightens your awareness towards that goal of improving ground contact. And I've seen people improve so much quicker when they just add those two things, good feedback and recording. Yeah. You know, my reaction to him saying that was, I mean, I remember having a conversation with a mini tour player a few years ago and he was, you know, telling me about all these complex spreadsheets he had of, you know, dividing up his time on practice and doing this. And it sounded all great. And I'm like, wow, that's so, you know, responsible and, and cool. But, you know, he never made it. <laughs> and then you hear someone like Dylan Fertelli being like, yeah, I'm starting to write stuff down because I feel like I should be more structured and he's, you know, 90 in the world. So I think that that most great golfers figure it out on their own terms and they are they're not just going through the motions they're going through their own version of smart practice they are like you said they have a goal in mind like me for example not that I'm a great golfer on Dylan's level but I look for clues or things in my rounds that stand out that make me uncomfortable so for example this season I've been a little uncomfortable with my ground contact with wedges around the green and even in the bunker so, you know, rather than beating balls on the range, I'll just spend 20 or 30 minutes in the short game area hitting some wedge shots off of really tight lies. And, and I'm, essentially what I'm trying to do is just figure some type of feel that I can bring out onto the course when I'm under pressure. So that was my goal for that practice session is to try and figure this out. Like, what can I do? Is it my ball position? Is it how I feel like I'm delivering the club? Get a feel that I can bring out in the next round to make me more comfortable in that situation. So, yeah, there's a million ways to do this. And I would encourage all of you to buy Adam's book, The Practice Manual, because he kind of covers all of it in there. But yeah, I think it's one of those things where, you know, you should have some structure. But again, we're doing this for fun. You don't have to write it all down, but at least paying attention to what's going on, using proper feedback. A lot of the impact fundamentals we're always talking about, strike, um, how the ball's curving through the air, how you make contact with the ground, which a product like Divot Board can certainly help. But yeah, that was my reaction to what he said is like, it kind of shocked me, but at the same time it didn't because I'm like, well, this guy's just so good. He figured it out on his own terms and now he's, you know, maybe he's trying to be a little bit more regimented about it. Yeah, and you could ask a, a bunch of different players and you'd receive so many different results. I'm sure Bryson's practice schedules are so structured and he's getting lots of data and all of them. I'm that way inclined as well. I love just, I'll sit there for hours looking at my strokes gain stats and looking at my proximity on the launch monitor and digging into the numbers just because that's the way my brain works. But I know that not everybody is like that. I'd say at a bare minimum, you need to be working on things that are relevant so, you know, it's pointless, you know, standing there practicing a thousand two foot putts if you're really poor at driving. 
So that's obviously an extreme argument, but just to highlight that using things like strokes gained or basic stats, if you can get them, can help guide what you need to work on. The core stats I keep for players are going to be how is your ground contact? How is your face contact? How is your direction? So we know which one of those to work on. So regardless of what level you are, you're always going to be working on one of those three things, whether you know it or not. So you might as well take control of that. But yeah, those are my closing thoughts on that. Okay, so uh, why don't you take the next one? What else stood out to you from what Dylan Fratelli spoke about? So he asked a question that probably the answer is not as relevant to amateurs. So it's important to discuss that here. So we asked that, you know, if you hit a bad shot on the golf course, what do you do? So, you know, I was looking for, is there, does he try and change things on the course, whether that's technical or field-based or what? And his answer was, you know, if I hit a bad shot, I just let it go. Or if it was a shaping shot, so he said if he's fading it one day or drawing one day, he just changes his aim points. I think you can certainly, amateurs can learn from that. Because all amateurs, when they are hitting a shape or directional bias, they think it's wrong in air quotes. Whereas the reality is, you can listen to all the greats talk about it. They say, well, if I'm hitting it one direction more, if I'm hitting it more to the left, I'm just going to pick an aim point that's more to the right. And so he's talking about how he tells his caddy, you know, if I'm starting the ball more offline today, don't worry, I'm just playing for this pattern that I have. So that's important to understand that pros don't freak out when their ball's not going where they want it to. They will just use simple strategies to adjust for that. So my reaction to that was I wasn't surprised that he said that either. And I think, you know, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this is that because someone at his level, which is, as he said in his own words, is playing an entirely different game. He doesn't need to worry about a lot of the things that the rest of us do in a round of golf. He's going to be striking it well. His ground contact is going to be impeccable. A lot of the adjustments that us mortal golfers will have to make, he's not so worried about. So that's why he can go out there under pressure and say, hey, you know what? If I'm hitting a, a three-yard draw today and it's changing my my pattern a little, you know, I got to aim a little right, no big deal. He's not going to be chunking it. <laughs> he's not going to be clanking it off the toe of his driver. So his control over all those impact fundamentals, or at least the variability of it, is at a much tighter spot than the rest of us. So I'm not surprised that he doesn't need to do much self-correction. But what does that mean for the rest of us? Exactly. I mean, I asked him, well, what if it was a shank? And again, his answer was the same. I just let it go. And I was thinking, well, that's fine for him because he knows the next one is not going to be a shank. It's very unlikely as a tour player because they've just got this instinctive ability to find the sweet spot. And they would occasionally misstrike it, but it's not going to be a consistent pattern for them. And so, but with amateurs... If an amateur hits a shank, there's a very good likelihood that the next one is going to be a shank and the next one is going to be a shank or going to be close to it. So an amateur with strike issues, fats, thins, shanks, toes, they're going to need to have some kind of tool, whether technical or intentional. They're going to need to have some kind of ability to recalibrate that. Whereas a tour pro, it's at all unconscious for them. So this is where tour pros and amateurs will separate off. Now, I should have asked Fratelli, and I didn't. I should have asked him, 
What happens if you shank three in a row? What do you do then? And I bet I would have got a different answer. I bet he'd have some kind of thing that he would implement for that. Because you can't just palm it off, especially if you're in a tournament. You can't just shank three in a row and go, ah, just forget about it. (laughs) You can't. Well, he did allude to the fact that he said off the tee, if he was hitting some big misses, then I think he, I'm pretty sure he said he would probably make some interventions at that point if there was a big problem. It was interesting for me to hear that because... I'm getting a taste of this playing a lot of tournament golf and being around some great golfers who are at a much higher level than me. It's the confidence level. And I'm trying to, I've been developing this over the years as well. Is someone like him or anyone else on tour who's at that worldwide level, the amount of confidence they need to have to go out there in front of all these people on TV, hitting these shots, their livelihoods on the line. It's just, I personally can't fathom it. It's crazy to me how much confidence they have. So in a sense, I'm assuming that he, you know, guys like him need to have this force field around them and be like, oh, if I hit a shank, that that's never happening again. But just because like I'm that good, I have to be that good. Because if I don't think I'm that good, then, <laughs> you know, we've seen some players implode on TV. It gets very ugly very fast when their confidence seems to go. Obviously, they're capable of hitting the great shots, but under pressure, your mind can play some extreme tricks on you. So yeah, I thought that was a cool answer from him to get that. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. 
Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. Yeah, I mean, I would summarize that kind of stuff as if if you're hitting a strike issue, which the pros are not going to have consistent strike issues. They just they've ingrained good strikes so much, and that's a lesson for amateurs as well. Really work on your strike quality. But the, if you are an amateur and you're hitting poor strikes, you're going to have to have tools to be able to recalibrate it. So learn those before you need them. However, if it's a directional issue, we have two different tactics we could take. You could try to adjust it, or you could just play with it on the day. And there's no right or wrong necessarily with that. But in my experience, when a player tries to adjust direction, they will, but they'll also open up a bigger spread. Because now they have the pattern that they don't want, and they're opening up new patterns. So say, for example, your ball's going left, 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 and you know what to do to change it, right? You just got to open the face a little bit more. Well, when you do that, you've got the old pattern in there, the left, 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 and now you've opened up the right side a little bit more as well. So it can open up the spread a bit. And then you spend the rest of the round recalibrating now, trying to calibrate it. So that's probably why most better players have said, you know what, if my ball's going offline a little bit, I'm just going to pick different aim points because at least... It's consistent then. At least the outcome is has a, a lower spread. Unless then you go to the end of the spectrum where if it's a 40-yard, 50-yard curve offline, you've got to do something to adjust it then because it's really hard to pick an aim point that's 50 yards offline. No, sir. I would not be comfortable with that. Another thing that oh, – sorry to cut you off. Oh, are we good there? Do we want to keep moving on? No, we're on? good. Yeah, Okay. Yeah. All right. One thing that I thought was very interesting and, and he was kind of – speaking our language. You know, there were some things where he kind of reiterated what we've been talking about on the podcast. And rightfully, there were some things where he probably had a different viewpoint. That's golf. One thing he did say is that I liked what he said about using practice time to consciously ingrain swing thoughts. And then when he's on the course, those technical thoughts are really not there. You know, he mentioned the Vision 54 think box, play box, where he's, you know, kind of doing a lot of the things that we talked about in the pre-shot routine episode, which was accessing that inner athlete, like looking at the target, picking your shot, and then just reacting. So I liked what he said about where he uses his practice time to put in that mechanical work so that on the course, he can be more instinctual and just kind of let it happen the best he can. Yeah, and I like that. Obviously, that fits a big part of our philosophy of the podcast and a big part of my philosophy on external focuses, which even Dylan mentioned, it goes with the science as well. The external focuses, focusing on the target, tends to produce better outcomes. I would argue that that's not true for everybody. Exactly. Yeah, there's plenty of tour players who probably have very mechanical thoughts on the course. And there are plenty of amateurs who, if you made them think of the target, they'd shank 20 in a row. So all of this stuff is individual. And, you know, as an instructor, I can kind of get a sense when I meet someone, just talking with them, understanding how their brain works, asking them what job they do, listen to them talk about their own game. I can usually zone in on much quicker what type of thoughts are going to work best for that player. And then we can test them. But yeah, it's it's one of those things where there's both ends of the spectrum. In fact, there was a decision discussion on one of the tour, the, the teaching pros forums, where they asked, what does this focusing on the target even mean? Because you have a bunch of uber technical instructors who can't even fathom 
just thinking about the target and hitting it. They can't fathom it at all because they're so ingrained in, well, you've got to swing it this way. You've got to be focusing on your backswing and this and that. They just can't wrap their head around how someone could just be reacting to a target. Yet Dylan shows that, yes, you can. And I know what it feels like to do that as well. And so, yeah, you've got that end of the spectrum where it's probably refreshing or it should spark in those instructors or those really mechanical people's minds that, oh, this is an option. This actually exists that people can just focus on the target. But then the other end of the spectrum, uh, you get a bunch of amateurs who are just very target oriented and they're horrible. Their techniques are so horrible that they need to, they may need to focus on something more technical or more closer to them like ball strike. Yeah, and that's probably why we keep going back to, I guess, offering all these options to golfers. I hope we're not confusing people because there are so many variables in this game, but it is a personal game and there's so many different ways to arrive at functional golf, which is a word I like to keep saying because that's what I aspire to play is functional golf. And, you know, for some people, they might need like a nice swing cue that is Maybe if they're working with a swing instructor, there's just one thought they have to keep thinking over and over again to correct some serious flaw they have. Whereas someone like myself, or maybe I'm a bit more self-taught, I don't really play well with stuff like that. I, I need to think more about, you know, targets or at least like big picture things like swing path or is my club face open or closed, something that simple. There are some generalizable rules on that as well. So I know there are a lot of options, but the generalizable rule would be if you have an impact fault and it's causing you an issue, you're going to have to focus on something that deals with that. If you're shanking it, you're going to have to focus on something that deals with the shank. Focusing on the target all you want is not going to help you or relaxing all you want is not going to help that shank necessarily. Whereas when you get a better player like yourself or Dylan or myself, we might be better off focusing on a target because we've already got the strike skills ingrained. So focusing on the target uh, or focusing even on nothing at all, you know, counting routine or something like that will help to make our patterns more consistent. So it depends on what level of player they are. That Vision 54 stuff with Annika Sorenstam, great with Annika Sorenstam because she's already got those skills ingrained, but might not work for the average golfer for everybody. We might need something that's more tailored to their issues. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the challenging thing about golf improvement is that there really is so many different answers for each player. And of course, with your own unique circumstances, how much time you have to work on it, your skill level, do you even have enough time to play golf to see these things through on the course? So yeah, I think for the better player, you would expect to hear things like that where it's like, yeah, I just kind of step up to it and hit it, <laughs> which Again, if you've got some really good skill ingrained in there, you're just letting things happen. Whereas if you're not as skilled, you need to figure out a way to deal with whatever deficit you have, whether it's strike location, controlling the face, a extreme swing path, a number of things. And that's why we often say working with a swing instructor can be helpful for people because you get that tailored advice and you can focus on the right things in practice and build constructively towards a game on the course that addresses these things. Anything else on that or we want to move on to I had I think I had one more thing from the conversation. I don't know if you had others as well. Go on. I'll, I'll let you go because the one I want to go segues nicely into the feedback that we had. Okay. So another thing that, you know, for a tour player, again, they're playing under tremendous pressure. Money's on the line. A lot of things are on the line. Whereas if you're playing on Saturday with your buddies and maybe drinking a few beers and you've got a $10 NASA on the line, obviously it's different. But what I did 
love to hear from him was that in a mental sense was that he forgets the shot and moves on to the next one. Like there's nothing he can do about it. And we have spoken about post-shot routines and how, again, normal golfers might need to do that process a little bit differently. But we often hear this from a lot of players where you need to have a short memory on the golf course. You know, when you hit that shot and it's over, you know, the next one is a totally independent event that you have to deal with. You know, I'm thinking back to this weekend, I was competing in the New York State Mid-Am and I was in very good position. I made it to the final round. I was on the top 30, tough win day. And I was, I made a birdie on the ninth hole, then the 10th hole, bought me back to one over for the day. So I was in the mix for maybe a top 10 or a top 20. And all of a sudden on the easiest tee shot on the golf course, I just hit the worst pull ever with my hybrid and it lost the golf ball. Couldn't believe it. But my next one, I had to re-tee it, hit it in the middle of the fairway. And I had a very nervy shot over water, downhill, downwind, small target. And I had to do my best to put that lost ball behind me. And and, and thankfully I did. I knocked it on the green. I, I made my double bogey, which was a par on the OB ball. But that was difficult to deal with. And maybe had that been me five, six, seven years ago, I probably would have lost my temper, panicked a number of things. But, you know, I kind of dealt with it. I wasn't happy about it, but I didn't lose my temper. I wasn't that upset. I just I just moved on and, and dealt with I looked at the next shot and I said, what am I doing here? What can I do to give myself the best chance to keep this ball in play and have a decent result? And that's, you know, one of the mental skills that I see so many golfers never even work on is having that kind of short memory on the course and just Sometimes, I mean, we've talked about post-shot routines where you are paying attention to what's going on, but at the same time, you do have to put that shot behind you, good or bad. Well, there's the emotional part to this and there's the analytical part. I that's think- where I'm speaking more to the emotional part. Yeah, and I think Dylan was as well. I think that's right. You have to have a short memory in terms of emotion. You have to let it go and not let that affect the future shots because that doesn't do anything for you. However, analytically, and this is the other end of the spectrum, you should probably be on some level noting down what patterns are emerging. Because I've seen too many players when I play with them in in playing lessons, they have definite patterns and they're just not noting them mentally. So they can get to the end of that round of golf and you say to them, well, what was happening during that round? And they say, oh, it was complete random. And I say, no, it wasn't. Every single face strike issue you had was off the heel. Every single direction miss you had was left. And so if you had noted that down, you could have put a correction in during the course, perhaps, especially for the heel shots. So, you know, you need that balance there. And also, you know, something I was trying to get to with Dylan, but not all players have this ability or even go through this. But say you miss a shot left. I would want to know, and this is something I do in my own game, was that just a pure mechanical error, as in I closed the face too much for no reason at all? Or was there something beneath that? In other words, if I was standing there and there's water on the right and my brain is going, just don't hit it right, and then I miss it left, am I going to go off on the range and practice my club face direction? No. What I'm going to do is practice my ability to commit to a decision and pick a better target and, and swing aggressively towards a target. So yes, there are mechanical errors, but they're often underlying mental errors, especially when you reach the elite level. You know, it's very unlikely they just throw in a mechanical error for no reason. Usually there's some kind of 
underlying mental issue. And you were talking about this. I don't know whether it was on the podcast or the the pre-talk. You're talking about your round of golf and how you're saying your iron play is mental at the moment. You know, you're not committing to certain lines or you think you've got the wrong club in your hand at a certain point and you're worried about going over the back. These are all things that launch monitors and video cameras are not going to pick up on. But you have to, I would say, be aware of if you really want to reach your potential. Well, I'll give you an example of separating the emotion from the analytical in that instance. And I did not have a great result that day. The wind was tough and I just did not play well coming down the stretch. And I think a lot of it had to do with a swirling wind and me not committing to my iron shots. But on that shot in particular, I went back after the round. In the moment, I put it behind me. There was nothing I could do. I had to hit the next shot and I was still, you know, technically in the tournament, you know, playing well. Afterwards, I thought about what happened. Well, I had made two birdies in a row and I was probably puffing myself up a little too much. And I stepped up to that tee shot and that tee shot was severely downhill. There was a pine tree blocking out the right side. So in my head, I stepped up all the way to the left side of the tee box and I thought to myself, this happened after the round where I kind of deconstructed what was going on. It happened very quickly, but I know, you know, what my mind was thinking. It was like, oh, you can't hit your big swinging hook here. You need to hit a bit of a straighter shot. So in that kind of fog of war, I thought to myself, you've got to neutralize. You can't hit the hook here. You've got to maybe hit your fade swing. And I essentially hit a double cross. And I just closed the club face down and, you know, I went from a non-stock shot to maybe trying something a little bit different because I was thinking about the trouble. And honestly, I just lost my commitment and concentration for a split second and that's all it takes. Again, this is under tournament conditions and all of a sudden, boom, gone. Worst shot of the tournament out of nowhere. I didn't feel like I needed to correct it in the moment because I knew it came out of nowhere. But upon further reflection, I think that's what happened mentally, if I'm being honest with myself. So emotionally, I moved on. But, you know, after the round, I kind of sat down and thought about it. I'm like, you know, what was going on there? And I think that was the issue. My mind got a little jumbled and I didn't commit. Yep. Yep, exactly. I go through all my rounds at the end of it and I note down all the errors. I know it's a, a negative way of looking at it, but it helps inform what do I need to improve? You know, where did I lose my shots out there? And I put them into technical errors or pure technical errors, you know, whether it was long, short, left, right, whether it was fat, thin, toe, heel. But I also, this is a big difference, I note down what mental errors I had. And so I have things like, was there fear there? And, you know, especially if that influences the outcome, if I was fearful of the right side and I missed it left, I'm not going to go and work on my swing for that. I'm going to work on something that helps me with the fear. Was I distracted? You know, sometimes I'm putting and the people are walking around or something like that. And I should have, I should just back off it. But, you know, you're trying to play quickly with amateurs. But, you know, distraction could be something as well or loss of focus on swing cue. Could be another one as well. A lot of stuff can go wrong out there, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, you know, if I'm missing it left one day, I know that if I just place my right hand a little bit more on top, that alleviates the left miss. But sometimes, occasionally, I'll walk in and I'll forget to do that. And then I'll miss it left. And I think, oh, I forgot to do that. Okay, well, yes, it was a technical error, but I also forgot to focus on my swing cue. And if I see that problem pop up, if I see that tally start to raise on forgetting swing cue, then I'm going to implement something to help that. And it might be something such as keeping a scorecard of did I remember my swing 
Thank you. There could be club selection issues as well. You might strike it perfectly. Everything might be absolutely perfect technically, but you've just picked the wrong club because, you know, you, the pin's tucked on the front. You're trying to get greedy and bust an eight iron there, whereas you know you should be playing a seven towards the middle. You hit an average shot and it falls short. That is not an error because if you hit an average shot, that's not an error. Uh, that's a club selection issue. Or you might have too aggressive a strategy. I remember a shot on the course recently where the pin was tucked on the left and I went at it and I missed it just one, I was going to say one finger left, which is about 10 yards or five yards left. And it hit the edge of the green and bounced left and I was short-sided, which if you're listening to our uh, Lou Stagner podcast, you know, being short-sided is destruction for your score. And was that a bad shot? No. It was a good shot, technically. Missing five yards left of your target is a tall-level miss. However, it was too aggressive a strategy, so that goes under a mental fault. Or they'd even miscalculations. You know, sometimes you'll do everything right, but you didn't take into account the slope. You know, the flag is uphill a little bit, or you misjudged the wind or the conditions. You hit a chip shot, and it doesn't come out how you imagine it. You provide the exact force that you wanted to. You strike the ball perfect and the ball comes out, hits the green and runs out like a scalded cat. That's not a technical error. That is a misjudgment of conditions. So in that scenario, I would go off and kind of practice differently. I would practice from different lies. I would try to do more random practice. So I'm forcing myself to try and predict the conditions. So yeah, I would say emotionally, yes, forget the shot. But analytically, I like to keep track of certain things to see what patterns are occurring because mid-round that might help you. But certainly after the round, you need to know that stuff to guide where your improvement is coming from. Yeah, I mean, in the second round of that tournament, the first day I played incredibly well. I drove it just perfect. And I was tied for six after the first round. And then the second day, I teed off amongst the leaders a little bit more nervous. And on the second and third hole, I hit these horrible low pull hooks with my driver. Like just to get to your point, yeah, I had to deal with that emotionally. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, this is intervention time. Obviously, you are a little nervous here. You know what's going on in your swing to produce that low hook. You need to deal with this. And... I did. I was able to straighten out the driver with the opposite feels, keeping the club face a little bit more open and feeling, you know, I knew I was coming a little bit into out too much. So that's the opposite example of the other situation I presented, which was emotionally just moving on. But this one was like, okay, that is a pattern I cannot live with today. And I need to make an intervention here. So very difficult to walk that balancing act. I'm not perfect at it, learning to get better at it. But yeah, I think that's it's the emotional thing of moving on, but at the same time, keeping your analytical hat on as well. Anyways, we've got some other stuff to talk about. Do you want to segue for us here? I don't think we're going to get there, John. I think we should cut off the podcast here. We're gonna, Sorry, guys, this has been a teaser for you. But yeah, we've got some really good feedback. Yeah, we didn't even say what we were going to talk about. So we'll leave it a question mark and shelve it for another episode. Was there anything else in the Fratelli episode that you were interested in covering? Yeah, just on that topic that we were discussing about forgetting. How do you forget? Well, I think the best way to forget is Alcohol. To, well, yeah, I suppose that's one way. The best way to forget is non-drug way is to focus more on what you do want during the shot. So that again leads to our pre-shot routine episode. So 
as you're standing there preparing for the shot, really zoning in on things like how far is this? I don't want to go through the entire list, but I think Morikawa, he had a great little a sentence or paragraph of they were asking, how do you perform so well under pressure? And he said, I just keep my mind focused to build a story, a picture of exactly what I want. And I know Jack Nicholas talked about that, going to the movies in his head. He's talking about how he builds this picture that's so clear of what he wants. That if you're doing that, if your brain is so focused on that, you can't be remembering the bad shots. So really just zoning in on exactly what you want, whether it's focusing like a laser on where you want that ball to land or focusing on your swing cue, you know, ramping that up on a scale of zero to 10. Sometimes I'll get people to keep a scorecard of that. After each shot, I'll say, how would you rate your focus on your swing cue? during that shot and they'll give it a score out of 10 and I will keep doing that over every single shot and at the end of the round we'll give them an average they'll say well if your focus was a 6.2 on average let's see if we can improve that next time a little subjective but you know yeah I had a four hour drive home after the tournament and it was really two tournaments in a row that this happened (laughs) where I got myself into position a tough swirling wind came and it really forced me into this indecisive state on the course where I was in my pre-shot routine was probably a little bit too much fear-based where I was thinking of all the things that could go wrong with the shot if I didn't get the win right. So, I remember, for example, I think it was on the 15th hole on the final day this past weekend. I just could not tell if the wind was with me or against me. It kept shifting. I kept throwing the grass up and it was downwind, then it was into me. And eventually I'm like, well, I think the prevailing wind is with me. And I hit what I thought was a perfect eight iron and it landed. I'm like posing over this thing. I'm like, oh, here we go. This is all over it. And it landed like 20 yards short of the green. And, you know, wind, I think is probably, you know, some players don't play in a lot of wind. Like I know golfers are like, let's say live in Arizona, don't have to deal with this. But I think wind and elevation change can really, that's for me what I'm struggling with at the moment in tournaments on approach shots is being more committed to that target and club selection rather than allowing the conditions and I guess the pressure of the moment to dictate my thoughts too much. I certainly don't feel as nervous as I used to. I don't feel nervous, but it's indecisiveness that I'm trying to conquer. Yes. I would say you need to monitor, are you under or over judging the wind? Just keeping a track of that pattern. And you could even separate that into downwind versus into the wind. So most people will severely underjudge how strong the wind is going to affect their ball when it's blown into their face. Downwind, they're usually about right with it, but it'll knock your ball down quite a lot, much more than you think usually. So just keeping track of that so that then that can guide your future decisions. So when you're facing into the wind, you're probably going to select more club if you've kept track of it. But then another big thing for you would be to pick a decision, pick an aim point, pick a whatever you're going to do, and then keep track of your your commitment to that decision out of 10. So at the end of each shot, you'll say, what score did I have? How well out of 10 did I commit to that? And you'd write it down. And that, the act of just writing that down, recording it and noting and seeing over time, playing a game with yourself, see if you can get that commitment up, that will improve your ability to commit. And now you might hit horrible shots if you've picked poor decisions, if you made poor decisions, but you can at least walk off saying, you know what, I committed to every single thing I did. Because like you said, there's nothing worse than standing over a shot with a lack of commitment. And then you give a half-assed approach to it and it doesn't come out as you wanted to. Yeah, I think it's something that happens 
as you, I always say like climbing the ladder in golf, you're going through these different circumstances, whether, you know, talking about our scoring milestones episode, we talked about like, well, what do you need to do to be comfortable when all of a sudden you have a chance to shoot your best score? For me being in tournaments and new situations where I'm actually like in the mix, like I used to just want to get in these events and now I'm actually playing pretty well in them. And it's making me, it's giving me new situations and new feelings. And I have to, like everyone else, whether you were trying to break 90 and let's say it, it kind of fell apart or my situation where I, I didn't feel like I committed as well. It's kind of going back and thinking through these things. And now, you know, as I look towards, you know, next season as getting better at, at tournament golf is like, I'm probably going to have to do what you said is, is like, keep track of this a little bit more diligently and note what's going on because it's these small things that start to separate players. And you can do this in your own way. Like I said, if you were looking to break 100, it's all relative in this game. (laughs) How your mind can trick you before the shot, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I want you as an example there. I would be doing similar things. You know, when I analyze my games, I would say probably 80% of the things that I need to work on at the moment are mental. Things like club selection, picking less aggressive targets, all stuff that we talk about that we need to put in practice ourselves more often. And commitment to decisions as well. You know, I'm just thinking now about wind was, I felt like it was left to right. And so I'm aiming down the left-hand side. And as I'm doing it, I'm like, oh, is it really left to right? It's swirling a little bit. And then I just hit this awful shot. And, you know, because I'm at the last moment, I'm trying to steer it back right because I don't know if the wind is left to right. And it was, and then the wind takes it. And you're just like, if I I just committed to a decision there, just anything, then that, that would have been better. But it was just a bag of mental errors. So we all have these things. No one is immune from these things. If you can walk off a round of golf saying you didn't have any mental errors, quit because you're never going to have that again. But it's just minimizing these things, keeping track of them and then making implementations to get better. Just like with the technical stuff, right? You're keeping track of the big three impact variables or more. And then you're implementing something technical. Similarly with mental things, you're keeping track of the mental faults and then you're implementing some kind of strategy, whether it's a practice or whether it's a certain focus, whether it's recording something that helps you with that mental fault, helps you get better at it. Yeah, it's. I hope us discussing this in our own anecdotal way is helpful to people because you know the golf world often defaults to the physical things what you need to work on. And of course, they are incredibly important. But a lot of people, we've said this in in many other episodes, when they're done with the round, they just kind of discard everything that has happened, which is fine. You can do that. But if you are the type of player who wants to kind of leave no stone unturned and get your handicap lower and lower, these are the mental things relative to your own game that you're going to have to deal with. For a lot of players... I know for a fact, it's just dealing with maybe being embarrassed on the course or being uncomfortable around other golfers. I hear so many times from people, they're like, yeah, I just don't like being paired up with strangers or playing with a good golfer because I'm just so worried about what they're thinking about my game. Like that is a mental problem that needs to be overcome. And I think that step number one would just be acknowledging that nobody cares. They only care about their own game. So there's all these different things that I think can not haunt you is the right word. I always say haunt. That's a bad word. But I think challenge is a better word because that's what golf does. It challenges our mind. It challenges you at different levels of this game in your experience, whether you're a beginner or an experienced, very high level player. 
All of this is very relevant for me because I've just finished a module in Next Level Golf, just done the pre-shot routine, sorry, the post-shot routine video. So I go through all of the physical and all of the mental stuff, how to keep track of everything so you're making the right implementations later. But yeah, that's my little plug there. So if you go to nextlevelgolf.com, sorry, it's not even a website that, adamyounggolf.com and then Next Level Golf is the product and you can delve really deep into everything pre-shot post-shot in-shot routines and john are we good there we're up to an hour yeah i mean i'll make my own plug for like hopefully four to six months from now i was actually i'm working on my second book after a long hiatus so hopefully it gets done but this morning i've been writing early in the mornings i was writing about my thoughts on the pre-shot routine which you know reiterate a lot of stuff that we talk about so i was thinking really hard about all this stuff this morning because it's important it really is so yeah whenever that book comes out please buy it but it's not out yet so yeah let's wrap it up there our mystery topic we will cover in another episode. So you have that to look forward to or not look forward to. You don't know what it is yet. So Adam, where can everyone find you? AdamYoungGolf.com. And John, where can people find you? You can find me at Practical-Golf.com. And I'm just going to do another little plug for our sponsor here. Thanks again to ShopIndoorGolf.com. If you're in the market for a simulator, launch monitor, anything that goes with that, whether it's a hitting mat, practice nets, projectors, literally anything you need to build any kind of setup based on your budget, whether it's a nice room in your house, in your garage, plenty of people are doing that. The technology can be a little intimidating and I've gone through this process myself. It's like, well, what components do I get? Check them out, go on their site. You can call them up and they can help you navigate which products are right for you based on your budget, what type of setup you're looking for. So check them out, shopindoorgolf.com and thanks for their support. And thank you all for listening. We will see you next week.